This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Interesting news out of the city again. Boy, it's been a busy week down at City Hall. An arbitrator has ruled that the city won't have to pay damages to 25 public works employees, road workers, who claim their reputations were destroyed. This all goes back to this accusation uh, that went on back in 2012 about possible you know, selling off of asphalt and dumping product and uh, time theft and everything else. A number of public works employees were fired. Many of them appealed that. Some of them were hired back. It was a uh, black eye for uh, just about everybody involved in this. So joining us to talk about that and uh, also to do a wrap-up on, uh, on 2017 on local politics, former Hamilton mayor, now lobbyist uh, the city of Hamilton here, Larry Deany. How are you doing today, Larry? Hey, how are you, Bill? Bon Natale. It's uh, it's getting down to it, starting to look a lot like Christmas, but uh, this is the time of year where we, we start looking back and say, well, let's evaluate just what went on at City Hall, and we're going to do that in a couple of minutes, but I'd be interested to get your read on, on this arbitrator's report and the implications of this. You've seen the story. Yes, I have, and uh, I remember the story well, and uh, like everybody else was shocked um, at so many people being fired and uh, the damning report at the time when the report was done that there was a culture of low expectations uh, in the department that uh, perhaps was more damaging than anything else that might have happened. Uh, But I'm not surprised by the arbitrator's ruling and essentially the arbitrator is saying that that the union did not establish uh, bad faith bargaining on the part of the employer uh, even though he doesn't let the employer, the city of Hamilton, off scot-free, um, because everybody was painted with the with the same brush, everybody was made to look bad, and you know the stereotype of the uh, lazy uh, public worker who's you know resting on a shovel rather than working, or five people watching and one people doing some work. I mean, all of that image was conjured up again, and that's so unfair. Uh, those of us who worked and have seen firsthand the good work that m- uh, most people, I would say, uh, almost the unanimous majority of people uh, do um, in municipal government or any, or any other level of government was certainly damaged uh, during that time. And so the union uh, was slapped uh, on the wrist in this case by saying, no, uh, there's no bad faith. You didn't establish that. But similarly, the, the message to politicians and managers is keep your head down and keep your mouth shut and let the process play itself out without making it worse by things you might say that disparage everybody rather than simply identify those who need uh, some sort of uh, censure or punishment and and have it meted out. I'm, I'm confused by some of the things in in the arbitrator's report and some of the the uh, conclusions that uh, that uh, are are included in here by Mr. Slotnick. Lawrence Slotnick uh, uh, was the uh, arbitrator here. Uh, that uh, and, and he blames the media, by the way. And, of course, everybody blames the media for everything that ever goes wrong. I get that. Right. that that's always part of it. But uh, he says uh, he accuses the media of having eager local news reporters who were willing to report unverified and unattributed allegations. And my only comment to that, uh, Mr. Slotnick, is hindsight is twenty twenty, And you have the benefit of that. I had the city manager and the chairman of the Public Works Committee sitting right here in this studio with me who told us that they had done an exhaustive investigation and these were the findings. That's not speculative. And that's yeah. that's what this whole thing was based on. Now, here I go in hindsight and say, well, apparently that was unverified information. But we didn't know that at the time. We were told it was a city report like any other city report. 
Right. And so you know, somebody was misleading somebody. Uh, so, you know, it's always easy to try to find fault with somebody, whether it's the messenger, in this case, the media. Uh, and, and, you know, the media is eager to tell stories, but, but the media doesn't make up stories. Generally, my experience is, in spite of what's being said south of the border, uh, the media is true to itself and, and true to its reporting. And if it makes mistakes, it corrects them as well. And, and here's a perfect example where you had, you know, the horse's mouth telling you that some things were going awry and, um, and uh, some, some steps were being taken. Now, I don't blame the city manager uh, for highlighting it because imagine what would have happened if that report had not seen the light of day, uh, the kind of consternation there would be about cover-ups and, you know, uh, giving people passes when they didn't deserve passes and all of that. So you're always walking a fine line. But... Once you do that, and once, especially if you're into personnel issues, you can't play, uh, you can't uh, paint everybody with the same brush. You've always got to say, I think, that we're going to find out who isn't pulling his or her weight in this particular division, and we're going to take appropriate action. You don't have to pile on. And unfortunately, and I remember, right, so talking, you know, because people came up to me. Um, uh, as they continue to do even today because I was involved uh, previously in municipal government. And people say, see, see, we told you. Look at this. Now make an excuse now. People are always looking to, to find the, the worst-case scenario and, 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 and stipulate that that's true for everybody. And so I think the arbitrator, you know, set the comments about the media aside, um, those were not comments that really are germane to this conversation or to the arbitrator's role in this issue. Um, but what the arbitrator is saying is that the city acted appropriately uh, in terms of meeting out punishment to people um, and even walking back when they uh, were a little too excessive. But they didn't rise to the level of, uh, of uh, bad faith in what they were doing. They were dealing with a problem that actually existed. And the proof of that is that six people never did get their job back. Yeah, and the only other comment I'll make is uh, he accuses one of the councillors, uh, Councillor Ferguson, who's named in the story, uh, of uh, being politically seeking loose lips. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry, you you could toss that just about anybody at the council table and uh, at one time or another. So be that as it might, that might just be the nature of politics, and, and especially at the municipal level. But I'm, I'm hoping this is the end of it, Larry, that they can put this behind and start moving on now. Yeah. You'd like to think so anyway. I'd like to think so. And that, that comment was not unfair uh, to Councillor Ferguson. Uh, I've worked with pretty well all of the councillors in our current council, and I wouldn't say that that particular council has loose lips. All right, let's talk about that council in uh, the year 2017. It was a uh, a roller coaster ride. They did their darndest to try to keep the LRT issue in front of them, even though about three or four times during the course of the year there, they supposedly moved it back to the province and Metrolinx. Uh, but it was like, you know, Michael Corleone and The Godfather. Every time they thought it was over, they brought it back in again. Uh, but that was only one of many things that went on at City Council. What's, what's your assessment of performance levels, both as a whole and maybe individually? Sure. Um, well, like, like all years, um, you know, the, the, the year was filled with, uh, with drama, intrigue, uh, high points and low points. Uh, and interesting storylines that aren't over yet. Um, and so overall, I think it was a good year for the city. Uh, I think uh, 
uh, the city is showing some positives. The LRT uh, continues to be, and I think it will continue to be a, a story that uh, will have many aspects to it. Oh, that, that's going to go right into the election next year, isn't it, Larry? Well, it is. Uh, and, and, you know, um, it, it continues to move forward, however. I think finally, in spite of this last hiccup uh, over who manages some of the operations, uh, it is moving forward, and, and uh, contracts are soon going to be let and, and so on. Uh, so I think that's good. There, there's also lots of development activity in the city, uh, the revitalization of downtown, the Pier 8, the fact that uh, Pier 8 is going to be redeveloped, which I think is huge. And when you look at other parts of the city, there's good, solid uh, economic activity. I think that speaks well um, of the city. The, uh, the Stelco lands, and, and, you know, we were all surprised. I was shocked to, to find out that they're worth nothing. I mean, we all knew that they were toxic and, and had to have lots of cleanup. Uh, but for, for the assessed value to go down from 100000 plus to, to almost zero, 100 bucks an acre, uh, was shocking, but those lands have lots of potential as well. So lots of positives, but there were also some low points, I think. And, you know, uh, as a council, in terms of moving the city forward, I think that there were some good strides that were made. Um, the, the negatives, I see, are all the personal uh, sort of fights and, and, uh, and, and arguments uh, that, that have taken on a particularly a nasty tone in some cases. I mean, politics is always about thrust and parry, um, and it's not for the faint of heart, especially in Hamilton. And uh, you and I both probably have scars to show for oh, that. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But that's you know, but that's part of the excitement. However, um, think about it. You know, as a police services board, uh, we have now Councillor Ferguson, who's the chair of the board, um, being. Uh, chastised and complained about by Councillor Green because of some comments he made. Uh, and I don't know how much there is to that story, but they seem to me to be relatively innocuous comments, and yet they're part of an investigation that's going to happen. Uh, there was um, um, a, an argument between two members, uh, Walt Junkiewicz and uh, Madeline Levy, over some sidebar comments that apparently were made that were hurtful to one side, uh, denied by the other, and dragged in a whole community into that as well as complaints to OCOPS. Uh, so, and then, of course, the carding incident uh, between Matthew Green and, and one of the officers, um, and, and the question is still out, uh, was this uh, police uh, aggressive policing and, and inappropriate policing, or was it showboating? And we don't know the answers to that yet. Um, Councillor Pasuda um, whose ward has now disappeared, uh, also had a near-death experience uh, in uh, a couple of accidents that he had on his farm. And, uh, of course, that, that adds to the uh, intrigue. And then we have the great uh, battle between Councillor Skelly and Partridge, who were both seeking higher office and running against each other. I don't know whether we've ever had an example of that in the city where two sitting councillors are facing off against each other in, uh, in uh, another level of government. And then, of course, there's a whole war boundaries issues uh, as well that's, that's going to shake up uh, this council. I think at the end of the day, you'll see um, most of the same faces around the table, with the exception of Skelly and Partridge, depending on, on who wins that particular race. But there are some councillors who have to decide where they're going to run. Councillor Whitehead, 
board has been split in half. He's going to have to decide, does he go with the new one? Does he stay with the old one? Uh, Councillor Pasuda, of course, whose ward has disappeared, has three wards. His ward has been split among three. He's going to have to decide uh, which of the three he might run in, if at all. Uh, Councillor Conley has lost Lower Stony Creek, uh, and I'm assuming that Chad Collins will run Ward 5 and and uh, downtown Stony Creek. But maybe not. Maybe Conley will want to take a shot at that as well. Um, or will he stay up on uh, on the escarpment? Uh, and Councillor Brenda Johnson, too, has to make a decision because her ward has been split. She loses Winona, which is tacked on to Ward 10, which makes sense to me geographically. Uh, but Councillor uh, Johnson will now have to decide whether she runs against Councillor Pearson because she lives in the Winona area, or does she run where she has some strength up in the Lambrook, Minbrook area as well. So I think it's going to be interesting and exciting to see how things shake up over the next number of months. Well, and it does set the scene, doesn't it, for 2018 politically, with an election coming up, and we know that that uh, usually you know, brings out the silliness in, in, in the politics, in the campaigning that goes on. Uh, there are some key issues, and there could be councillor versus councillor in some of those races. And it's all, of course, predicated on the fact that there's going to be a provincial election in the spring, and who knows what that's going to bring. Exactly. And will there be a new government there? And will the new government undo some of the uh, programs that have been started uh, uh, by the previous government? Um, and that'll be interesting. And, of course, I haven't mentioned the mayoralty race. I think uh, things have gone fairly well, uh, probably very well, for uh, Mayor Eisenberger. Um, uh, and, uh, and he should sail into another term. Um, and I know he's already said that he's running. I also know that other people are sniffing around the edges of the mayoralty to see uh, if uh, if they're going to take the plunge or not. So we might see a race there uh, as well. And um, it just makes for an interesting uh, and, as always, exciting political season in the city of Hamilton. Well, it uh, gets curiouser and curiouser, and uh, it's going to be a fabulous 2018. Larry, thanks as always, and uh, thank you for the input uh, right through the course of the year today on a lot of rather controversial issues. Uh, great talking with you once again, and, and once again, uh, best of the season. Merry Christmas to you and, the, and all yours. Well, thank you, Bill, and the same to you and all of your listeners. Okay, we'll talk again in the new year. Former Hamilton Mayor Larry Deany. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. What a day at the United Nations yesterday. Uh, this was the day that, of course, the uh, General Assembly was going to vote on a resolution condemning the United States' uh, announcement that they were going to move their embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. And, well, there was a vote on that, and, and some folks spoke, but, I mean, the, the, the first act of this drama was uh, when the United States ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, addressed the assembly, and uh, in part this is what she had to say. The United States will remember this day in which it was singled out attack in the General Assembly for the very act of exercising our right as a sovereign nation. Uh, she went on to say that they are taking names of all the people that don't support the resolution and on and on it went. It was uh, a not-so-veiled threat, really, that uh, apparently not too many people paid attention to because the, uh, uh, the the whole concept was widely condemned. Joining us to talk about the theater involved in this and the implications, Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, as she joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Laura, how are you doing today? 
I'm well, thank you, Bill. Uh, you must have been glued to the TV like most of us were yesterday. I, it was riveting theater that was going on, but uh, I, I got to tell you, I was shocked by Haley's comments to, as, as kind of a, a, a scene setter for this whole scenario. Especially because Nikki Haley, as you recall, was possibly going to be a candidate to run for president. She was very well respected in the Republican Party, but she seemed to be sort of a more old-school Republican, not the Trump-based type of person. She she got the Confederate flag down at her state house. She was seen to be someone who was intelligent and articulate and well-respected. And so when she went to the UN, um, many people thought that, hey, this is going to be a more balanced version of the Trump doctrine at the UN. She, she seems to be more nuanced. And so up until this point, Bill, she has been. She has often broken with Trump in terms of the rhetoric that he's used. She has even stood up for the accusers of Trump, for the sexual harassment, saying that they need to be heard. So there's this sense that she managed to maintain some kind of independence. And when she went up and made that speech, not only did it send a ripple throughout the world, but it also showed some people that possibly now Nikki Haley has come full swing under Trump's dogma and Trump's approach, which is this do what I say or you get punished. This idea that it's all day trading, it's all tactical, it's not about long, long-term long strategic soft power, it's all, we've got the hard power, so, you know, you know, either you do what we say or we take our money away. And that is something that goes against everything that diplomacy is about. And, and so to see her do it, not only was it shocking and had echoes of McCarthyism with the taking names, but it also sent a signal that maybe Nikki Haley is not going to be the more nuanced, rational voice for the United States at the UN. Well, to that point, uh, is is the, the 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 I guess the events of the last couple of weeks is that a factor in this? I mean, Jeff Sessions got his wrist slapped again, and and now all of a sudden, instead of recusing himself, has decided to reopen the investigation into Hillary Clinton. Uh, Rex Tillerson is is a dead man walking in Washington right now. It's a matter of when he's going to leave the administration. Does Haley look at that and figure if I want to be part of this team, I've got to get in line? I think that may be part of it, but there's always been that going on in the sense that the whole time that she's been there, other people have been falling away from Trump's inner circle and cabinet. It's been quite astounding. I mean, there's, there's, I think, over 10 now, if we were to count through them all, people that Trump has fired or, you know, have been dragged off or whatever. It's, it's been pretty brutal. So I think that it would have always been in the background, and yet she managed to break with him on something even as personal as the sexual uh, allegations against him. What I'm a little more cynical, Bill. I think it has to do all with the Republican tax cut being passed. The fact that Trump could get that done shores up his support amongst the Republicans. It makes people who were trying to keep one foot in, one foot out, say, okay, both feet in because we've delivered a big tax break to our donor base. We have a chance at getting reelected in the 2018 midterms because we passed some major legislation. So I think it has more to do with being on Trump's team now that he's seen as a victor, at least within the Republican Party. By the way, I, I want to get back to the UN in a second, but on that note, since you brought it up, have you anything, ever seen anything like the scene on the White House lawn yesterday as, as congressional leaders uh, fawned all over themselves and President Trump? I almost felt ill. I was listening in the car, and I didn't know who the speaker was initially. I, I missed the intro, but when when I was listening to it, I thought, wait a second, is this North Korea? There was like this dear leader, you're so wonderful, and only perfect leadership could ever bring us to this wonderful moment, and dear leader, dear leader. 
And I realized it was Vice President Pence, and 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 it, and it was it was sickening. And then when you hear all of them, of course, uh, I've got a translator to listen to all of them. There's this. It reminds you of that first cabinet meeting where the camera went around and everybody but General Mattis said basically that they were sycophants to the president and how wonderful he was. Now I understand that this is the this is something Paul Ryan made his Faustian bargain with Trump about was let's get through this tax cut that I've worked on my entire life. And Trump was able to get it done. And so many of them who have been holding their nose around Trump are all in now. And and I think that's what it goes back to Nikki Haley, the sense of Trump was seen as a supreme leader uh, with this tax cuts. He got through pretty outrageous tax cuts that are one of the most unpopular pieces of legislation in 25 years in the United States. But he managed to push it through. And so now they're all looking at him and saying, hey, if he can give us this legislation to go back to our base with, if he can keep the donors of the Republican Party happy, if he can make Wall Street happy and make us personally more wealthy, which many of them are getting more wealthy because of it, then, you know, he's our guy. Uh, and so, yes, all that fawning was, was gross and it felt authoritarian. And we're seeing with this tone of the U.N., the kind of voice that, an, that a grumpy autocrat would use, not a leader of the free world. Well, and it, it, it underscores the, the, the demand, I think, from Trump uh, that there must be loyalty on his team, undying loyalty. And we certainly saw that yesterday. I mean, when guys like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell stood up there and started gushing about Trump, these are the same people that six weeks ago were saying they couldn't work with the guy. Well, it's pretty outrageous. If you even look at, there was a, a Lindsey Graham said, you know, the media is trying to make him look like a kook, and then they have, of course, audio or video of him saying that Trump was a kook, right, you know, six months ago. So I think what, what we're seeing is that money, you know, the person who makes the gold makes the rules, right? And Trump brought the gold to, I mean, really, if you just look at it from a sheer follow-the-money perspective, a lot of these senators are wealthy, and a lot of them got a lot of money out of this, including Trump's family, maybe to the tone of a billion dollars because of not having that death tax. So the idea that that these guys got their big payout, and so if this is the person who's going to make their stocks boom, if this is the person who's going to make the donor, millionaire, billionaire donors happy, if this is the guy who's going to put fortunes in their family bank accounts, then they are going to fall all in behind him. And I think it, I think Americans should rightfully be very disturbed, not just by the legislation, uh, which is, as I said, historically unpopular, but by the kind of loyalty that it seems to have bought for people like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, who were at best towing the line against Trump in the past. But it goes to the point I made in my commentary earlier this morning that, uh, you know, here's a newsflash. Trump doesn't really care what the world thinks about Donald Trump. Uh, he's playing to the home team. All he cares about is is internal politics. He wants to appeal to his base uh, and do things. And that's what the Jerusalem motion was all about, really. It was a campaign promise he made. I'm sure there are people in the Beltway that that said to, to the administration, you understand what the implications are going to be. You understand this is going to be condemned. And it was uh, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. They don't care. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting what he cares about and what he what he doesn't care about. I, I agree with you. I think he cares about power and about the domestic politic and certainly the evangelical base. Uh, this is something I grew up in an evangelical home and, and very much evangelicals are fully supportive of Israel because of end-time prophecies, right? So this is more important to them than most people even realize, and so this is probably part of a bargain. They would support Trump through all of his outrageous immoral behavior because he was going to help them on Israel, he was going to get Gorsuch on the Supreme Court, 
so these are so these are these kind of bargains that we're watching, and we can watch them quite cynically. And so for Trump to do that, uh, it ignited, of course, protest across the Middle East. It outraged the world. It doesn't seem to be conducive to any kind of peace. And in fact, America lost their their standing as being an arbiter of potential peace in the Middle East. So there are dire consequences to it in terms of global long-term strategic diplomacy, but he doesn't care about the long term. I think he cares a little bit about how the world thinks about him because he doesn't want to go to Great Britain, apparently, if unless they're going to treat him with respect, because there is, of course, threats of mass moonings that people in Great Britain would moon his motorcade. So, I mean, I think he does care about his image in that regard, but he doesn't care about long-term diplomacy or stability. He cares about America having the power he grew up with way back after the Cold War, uh, and he has an image of America, even when he talked about, you know, taking back environmental protections and talked about the fact that we were going to have a deregulated society like the 1960s. He seems to have this image of America post-war where everything was prosperous and all-powerful, and he's trying to get America back to it. But of course, the world is more complex now, and to see so many nations around the world rebuke the United States at the UN, I thought sent a powerful message that, you know, the, the America as the sole power isn't going to be the structure of the future if they keep this up. Well, and we've talked about diminishing influence on in the world stage, and, and I think yesterday's vote was an example of that. Uh, just for the record, the nations that supported uh, the United States in this motion were Micronesia, Nauru, Togo, Tonga, Palo, the Marshall Islands, Guatemala, and Honduras. Uh, hardly the power brokers. Uh, and and uh, if you want to juxtapose that against, the, the, as you mentioned, Laura, the glory days uh, when you know FDR was standing beside Churchill or even Stalin and and, and others, uh, I mean, the power bases that eroded, and now those leaders of those other nations in other places like NATO and G7 are basically saying we're going to have to get along without the United States right now because we can't deal with this guy. Absolutely, and and Canada, oh, so, the, so the countries that, of course, opposed, or sorry, opposed the UN resolution against the Israel, the um, embassy in Jerusalem move, they were small, mostly Pacific islands that, or Atlantic islands that need funding from the U.S. desperately, right? They are, they, are, they are dependent on U.S. aid. So they went along with it. What was, I think, disappointing for many Canadians was that Canada decided to abstain. And you can look at it contextually and say, well, that's because we're in the middle of NAFTA and Mexico, I believe, abstained as well. And why, why get into a duel with Trump right now? But in the long term, people may revisit this move in history and say, there was a time when when great nations had to stand up to that kind of bullying of the world stage um, by the world superpower. There there was a time to stand up, and Canada missed the time because of what looks like a more uh, a more strategic calculation about trade. Uh, so I think that's unfortunate. I think that the the Trudeau Liberals may wear that down the line. Yeah, they may well rue the day on that, and, and, and I understand where they're coming from, but I, I, too, think that they should have taken a stand on this. I got a pretty good idea where they probably would have voted had they decided to vote on this, because uh, I, it's this dance that the Canadian government continues to do around the Trump administration, though, Laura, be, because of the, 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 the trepidation of, well, what are the ramifications going to be if we, if we anger the big guy in the White House? You know, is he going to rip up NAFTA? He may do that anyway, so you may as well... It's 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 like some a wise man once said, you know, to do with politics. No matter what you do, half the people are going to hate you, half the people are going to love what you did. So you may as well just do the right thing. Well, and it's interesting because I've certainly made commentary 
from the beginning that there wasn't a need to unnecessarily saber rattle with Trump. He was so he is so mercurial that there was no need for Trudeau to unnecessarily provoke a fight with him. Um, you know, when when it was matters of, of small kindnesses, you know, be diplomatic. No need to to sort of you know rage the elephant, if you will. When it comes to something where there are you know more important considerations on the table, like peace, like uh, human rights, other issues around the essence of democracy, the the the, the meaning of truth, and and all of these other all of these other important pillars of our of our modern society and of our free societies. When Trump is threatening those. Um, whether it's through you know this kind of bullying at the UN or, or who knows what else he might come up with, there are moments when great leaders have to stand up and be counted. And so I think that that Canada misread this moment yesterday. You know, I heard a commentary this morning which I thought was brilliant, which is that Trump is going to be a consequential president, but he won't be a great one. And so I think that Trudeau has to look at his legacy and say, you know, is he going to be consequential or is he going to be great? And I think great leaders are ones who have a strong ethical base and they stand up even when it's difficult, even against a powerful bully like Trump. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Laura, thanks as always, uh, not just for today, but of course for your contributions through the course of the year. Uh, All the best to you and yours for a great Christmas and a happy new year. Absolutely. And to all of your listeners and your family, Bill. Thanks again, Laura. Laura Babcock from Power Group. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, uh, this week news broke about a bread price-fixing scandal that has uh, rocked the uh, food industry, or has it really so much. Uh, And this, of course, is uh, a story that we actually floated a couple of months ago. The speculation was rampant that uh, grocery stores uh, right around the area here and right across the country were fixing the price of bread. Uh, and uh, then eventually what happened is uh, Loblaws companies and George Weston, uh, that they had actually uh, come forward to the Competition Bureau and said, look, at if you uh, give us immunity, we're going to point fingers. And they did. And now uh, other companies like Canada Bread, Walmart, Sobeys, Metro, even Giant Tiger are implicated in this, we're told. So we've paid a lot more, or so we're told. Now, industry experts are saying, yeah, well, you know what? Price fixing, if that's what you want to call it, probably happens a lot more than we even realize. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University in Ottawa. Ian, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Uh, it's my pleasure, Bill. Uh, listen, let's let's get into this concept of price fixing first. It's a it's an ugly phrase that conjures up ideas of uh, backroom deals and and you know indifference to consumers and just let's raise profit margins, etc. Uh, but setting prices, whatever phrase you want to use here uh, in in situations, is it is it a common practice? No, I don't think so at all. Um, I think that this appeals to people that have watched too many Hollywood movies. And I'm being very, very blunt and very, very serious. And just remind you and your listeners, I don't consult to anybody on the planet Earth. I have no financial involvement. I have no investments. I don't consult anybody directly or indirectly. My salary comes from Carleton. Uh, I did work in banking for 10 years in the 70s and 80s where I dealt with lots and lots and lots of corporations. And it's, it's one of those things, it's an enduring image and myth that comes in Hollywood movies of, uh, you know, businesses conspiring to, to uh, uh, take, uh, you know, the public to the cleaners. And I'm not, I'm not naive. Of course there's bad people in this world. There's people that commit murders. That doesn't mean all people are murderers. And, and so on and so forth. I do believe that if you go back in time, in the 1800s, the robber barons, um, when laws were vastly more lax, and uh, the technologies of investigation were very primitive, 
that there was a lot more uh, wrongdoing and uh, kickbacks and bribery and, and uh, price fixing in that period. In, in our lifetime, our world that we live in today, 21st century, where the media is pervasive, where there is social media capturing and watching and analyzing everybody doing everything. The way I like to put it, checkers, checking, checkers, checking, checkers. Academics checking every move and twitch of a corporation, NGOs, nonprofits analyzing them, government agencies, parliamentarians, uh, the media, and so forth. I think it's practically impossible. That's just on that side of the equation. On the other side of the equation that I'm even more familiar with, the complexity of business. You know, people have this image that appeals, that the conspiracy theory of business appeals to them, that business is this really, there's this one big brain at the top, sort of like in The Wizard of Oz, you know, the guy behind the <laughs> curtain, and he's controlling everything. Yeah. It doesn't exist. So sorry for people. The business world is vastly more complex than that. I worked in a bank. Each bank has 40, 50, thousand employees and the idea that one person can sit there and and fix the price of all the mortgage interest rates is just so preposterously ludicrous and idiotic it shows an incredible ignorance and about the lack of understanding of how big businesses work i'm not suggesting that people don't cheat of course people cheat all the time people break the law i speed sometimes i park illegally regularly and i get parking tickets Okay, so I'm not trying to say we're all virtuous. I'm just trying to say that it's a lot more difficult in this world uh, to do it, uh, a big corporation. I, paradoxically, and no offense to small businesses listening, I think it's a lot easier for a small business to get away with wrongdoing because they fly underneath the radar screen. If you're a company with five employees, you just simply don't get the same scrutiny as you do if you're Loblaws or if you're uh, Shell Oil or Exxon or the Bank of Montreal. So, and I'm not saying all small businesses are corrupt. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it, to the extent that there's wrongdoing, I think it's easier for a small business than it is for a big business to do it. Now, let's just turn to the Loblaws bill for a moment because yeah, it's something sure. that nobody has picked up on. Loblaws, uh, they turned themselves in. Uh, full kudos. Some of their employees were trying to apparently fix the prices. So Loblaws turned them in to the, to the authorities, to the competition authorities, Bureau in Ottawa. Uh, first and foremost, that suggests it wasn't being organized at the top. That doesn't excuse it. But it sounds like it was something going on in a particular product line of the company down in the mid-level. Um, that's still illegal, by the way. But it suggests that it wasn't being done at the, at, the, at the top level, at the CEO level, at the corporate level. The second point is, they said everybody was doing the industry. And yet, every other company has come out so far, at least the big ones, and I'm talking Metro, yeah. and, and, and these other companies have said, absolutely not. We didn't do it at all. So my question, conspiracy to fix prices requires that you negotiate with your competitors. But the competitors are flat out denying that they cooperated, that they worked with Loblaws to fix prices. In fact, they're cooperating, providing all their files to the Competition Bureau. That doesn't sound like somebody who was engaged in cheating to fix prices. So how can you have price fixing if you weren't fixing the price with any of your competitors? It's just a rather, you know, it's a very interesting question. How can you conspire to fix prices if you weren't conspiring with any of your competitors? Just a question. 
Well, and, and I don't know the answer to that. And, and you know, the first blush is, well, they're saying they didn't conspire because they, you know, they, that's their word at this stage. I don't know that anybody's proven yeah. accusations or anything. But look at the numbers here, Ian. And this is this is part of the this story I'm sure you saw, too. The uh, consumer price index for bread, rolls, buns, rolls 96% between 2001-2015. Uh, uh, the CPI for all other food was 45%. Uh, that's almost double uh, what it was for most other groceries. Is that a smoking gun? It, I think it's a signal. It's a, uh, something that should be investigated. I, I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying, shut down this investigation. Absolutely not. That's exactly why we have the Competition Bureau, A, to investigate where there is apparent uh, red signals of wrongdoing, and secondly, to inspire, con- uh, to ensure confidence amongst consumers and policymakers and so forth in, in um in the, the, the business community. So I, I want this investigation to go forward. I want it to be absolutely as aggressive as I'll get out. So I'm not suggesting don't go forward. I'm saying go forward uh, with a hammer. Go forward and, and subpoena every document in sight that you think is relevant. And I think what it will show at the end of the day is, is that there wasn't um, a, uh, uh, a, a, a conspiracy to fix uh, prices. Um, that isn't to say that there weren't people there that wanted to fix prices. You may, they may produce evidence of people saying, gee whiz, I really wish we could. But I just think it's the markets are so complex today, and there's so many variables going into it, and a lot of these commodities are publicly traded, such as wheat. Well, if it's publicly traded on an exchange, you can't fix it. It's, you know, it, it's like the price of oil. You can't fix the price of oil when it's an international price called West Texas Intermediate, or it's called Brent, or it's called uh, West uh, uh, Intermediate Crude or something. I mean, there's different, uh, in many, many commodity markets, including agricultural products, these are commodities with a, with, a, with a publicly known price you can look up on the Chicago commodity market at any moment in time. So that makes it, I think... Uh, uh, that and the fact that I've already said the vigilant media and suppliers and competitors and NGOs and professors who are willing to squeal and blow the whistle on you the moment they think that there's something going wrong makes it almost impossible, I think, to, uh, to successfully fix prices. I didn't say you, there aren't people out there who want, want to. I'm sure they do want to. But that's not the question. The question is, did you conspire to, uh, I, I think it says, to successfully fix prices? In other words, did you meet in some way, shape, or form and actually take steps to fix the price? And I'm, 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 very, I'm very skeptical. There could have been, to answer your question, why did the price go up? It's, it, prices go up and down in millions and millions and millions of markets, literally. And there's a, a drivers in every one of those markets, whether we're talking specialty steel or uh, sorghum seed or <laughs> hops or you name it. And uh, all I could say is you would have to go and well, we do this in my class, in the strategy class. We go and study different product markets to look at what are the supply-demand drivers. Are there shortages in that market? Are there lots of competitors in that market? What's government policy doing in that market? And so on, because every market is unique. And I understand, especially in the grocery business, uh, the the, the price, you know the profit margins are pretty small, and yeah. and if the price is already set for wheat, that you don't have a whole lot of wiggle room. I understand that, but right. to have it double what most other groceries are is it, well, it, it raises a few eyebrows. But let me ask oh, you something sure else. Here. And as I said, I hope that they uh, subpoena every relevant scrap of paper and every conversation, and and of course, if there was 
well, throw the book at them. Absolutely. What about, and that's at the macro level, but at the micro level, and you've heard this argument many times, uh, you used the reference about uh, the oil industry, Ian. Uh, and, and, you know, when I go and get my gas later on today, I'm, you know, I'm going to go to an intersection and there's going to be three or four gas stations around that intersection. And I'm going to look at it and I'm going to say, how come they all have the same price? They're all three different, co- four, four different companies. Hey, there's something going on here. Somebody's talking to somebody. I've heard this argument so many times it's not funny. I'll give you the exact, exact parallel. Yeah. Why is it that the banks all charge the same interest rates, basically? And they do. I can tell you, I was a mortgage manager. Okay, for almost 10 years. I lent millions and millions of dollars. This was in the late 70s and early 80s. And Canada Trust, which had been not been yet bought by uh, TD at that time, was famous. They would have, they called them loan sales. And they would run big full-page ads in the Globe and Mail. And oh, the, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Loan sales. And I used to get furious because guess what? When they had these loan sales, 25% off the mortgage interest rate if you come to Canada Trust. My customers would phone me up to pay me out, and of course I'm evaluated on how many my customers I've got on my books and how many I keep on my books. So I would get inundated with customers phoning me up to get the payout balance to pay me out because they were going off to TD. In other words, what I'm trying to say is because the price is so visible, it's a very common product, mortgages and gasoline, because there's a gas station on just about every corner. Now, if you just everybody out there in Radio Land. You come up to an intersection and you're running low on gas and you see four gas stations on four corners and two of them are five cents lower and two of them are five cents or ten cents higher. Which one are you going to drive into? Well, every one of you know the answer. You're going to drive into the one that's five or ten cents lower. So guess what? The guy is a slow learner who's five or ten cents higher and he realizes... Gee whiz, I don't have any customers right now because they're all going to the place that charges cheaper. Yeah, so guess what you do? You cut your price. That's exactly with interest rates. The interest rate is so visible and it's so easily comparable. The five-year close is whatever, you know, 3.1. You can't fudge it. You know, the price of your gasoline for regular, not high test, is, you know, 118 a liter uh, here in one block from my house, or it's not. Or it's 125 a liter, or it's 135 a liter. So you can't you can't fake these things. It's not like clothing where it's very difficult. You know, the manufacturers say, well, my shirts and socks and underwear is much higher quality than yours. I have no way of validating that. All I can look at is the price, but you can do all kinds of things in the quality of the product. With gas, it's a commodity. Okay, and it's very easy to compare, and that's why they stick the price up there very prominently. But what it does is it drives all of the competitors to a common price. And I say common within very, very narrow margins. You don't see a lot of price difference, actual difference. You won't see someone charging uh, gas at 130 a liter and another uh, gas station at 65 cents a liter. You'll just never see that. You know, they're within two or three or four cents a penny uh, of each other. In fact, in Ottawa, I find that they're almost all on the exact, I don't even mean on the same street. You can go three kilometers away, and they're selling, I mean, I go down to the suburbs, and they're selling it at exactly the same price. I mean, literally, exactly the same price, because it's, it's competition that's driving that. It's not price fixing, it's competition. Competition is driving the price to a common number, because to, a, to, to the competitive number, because if you don't, your gas station will be boycotted by all the people filling up their car. They'll say, no, I'm not going to that guy, he's a, he's, he's a highway robber, I'm going to go to that station down the street, because they're five cents lower a liter. 
the other unknown to this whole thing, probably unknown to many consumers, is oftentimes the the same guy owns the two same two stations anyway. So money's going into his pocket regardless. Um, you, there's a lot of I mean, in a lot of industries, there's a lot of concentration. You're absolutely right, but it's not it's not monopoly. Uh, meaning it's not a monopoly industry. There's still there are there are different firms, and um, and so and the, you know the um, and I'm not denying that, uh, but I'm I, I, I'm searching in my head while I'm talking to you. I can't remember how many retail chains there are in Canada, but it's certainly well more than two, and uh, or in, in Ontario, I should say. So uh, again, it's the other thing is is it's it's very hard to fix the price because as I've said, first off, the price of oil itself, the raw material of the stuff you're putting in your car is an international price called West Texas Intermediate, or it's called Brent, and 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 then the the taxes are again fixed. You have you can't tell the Ontario government you're not going to pay them their taxes. So the actual amount, the retail component, or the, the that's under the pr- control of the retailer, is far far less than the full price. I, I I'd have to again look it up, but I think it's about twenty or twenty five percent of the total price is under their control. Uh, the cost, the rest of the costs are fixed or given to them. So. It's um, uh, I um, people may not realize this, but we have some of the lowest outside of the Middle East. We have some of the lowest gasoline prices uh, anywhere in the world. Um, I uh, go to Europe every year, and uh, they're paying the equivalent in many European countries, including UK, including Germany. They're paying the equivalent of around two fifty to three dollars Canadian a liter. And uh, now it's mostly taxes, to be fair, uh, but. Um, uh, Canada and the U.S. It's even cheaper in the southern United States, but Canada and the U.S. have probably some of the cheapest uh, uh, gasoline prices of uh, any country uh, uh, that I'm aware of. Ian, got a couple of minutes left. You've mentioned uh, a couple of times the Competition Bureau. That's the oversight body that's right. supposed to look after this. Are they effective? Um, I, I think they are. Um, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but I certainly have read their annual reports over the years, and I've followed them when they've prosecuted companies, um, and. Uh, uh, I want, what I really want to and like any other oversight body, they win some, they lose some. They do, but I think they're they're um, what people may not realize is their threat is their power, their influence over companies. It's not the actual taking it to court and maybe winning one day, which will take years because you know it's rule of law and courts are slow. Uh, but it's the reputational damage. If you are a CEO and your company is, is announced that the CEO, that the uh, competition bureau is taking, is going to prosecute you, this is terrible for your reputation. This is terrible for your brand. And no CEO is sitting there saying, "Gee whiz, <laughs> I want to get sued by the competition bureau. I want to be have my name dragged to the paper that I'm a sleaze bag and and a disgusting uh, person who's cheating like crazy." Companies avoid that kind of uh, reputation like the plague. They, it, it is terrible for their brand, and it's terrible for their corporate reputation as individual CEOs. So I don't think that the, the, the implicit assumption when people talk about these price fixing is that companies treat the consequences in very cavalier and casual fashion. I don't believe that. I know that companies are paranoid, paranoid, absolutely paranoid when their name gets into the paper. Forget price fixing. If they get into the paper because of a CBC Marketplace story, they just start they start to shake. I mean, they start to fall apart. They, they don't like negative publicity. And the worst kind of all, of course, is where you're talking about violations of the criminal code or violations of the Competition Act. And this is, this is, this is career-destroying types of uh, uh, allegations. And so I, I don't think the companies take it loosely. I don't think that they do it casually. And I think that that's the 
the biggest threat or the stick, the biggest stick that the Competition Bureau has over corporations is just the threat of actually announcing that they are being prosecuted because that's deadly for the reputation. Ian Lee at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, thanks for this today and uh, for all your contributions through the year. Uh, all the best. A Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We'll talk uh, soon. My pleasure, Bill, and the same to you. Have Merry Christmas to you and your family. Thanks once again. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.